and one. White stripes. <laughs> yes. Red Asian Army. Guys, welcome to the community hotline for the community, by the community. I am your host, Bob Fang. Uh, it's presented by 88 Real Estate Media. And today we have community member Jake over here. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself, good sir? All right. Um, my name is Jake, Jake Ross. I'm uh, a professor at the University of Southern California. I'm uh, originally from Canada and I'm happily living in Los Angeles right now. Okay, awesome. Uh, kind of going through some, uh, you know, I guess topics of the day that we're gonna go over. We're gonna talk about money, we're gonna talk about education, we're gonna talk about love. The rules are there is no cursing. Uh, so if you do curse, you'll get a first strike, third, uh, second strike for the second one, and a third strike on the third one. So let's just get right into it then. Um, first topic of the day is going to be money. Tell us, what is money? Huh. Um, money is something that is used um, in exchange for goods and services, I take it. So uh, it's fairly universal, all right? It can be exchanged for just about anything. Um, it has an agreed upon value. Um, that's, yeah, one of the best definition, but that's what comes top of my head. Okay. Well, uh, why do you think you know money's not taught in schools as a as a teacher yourself? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, I couldn't tell you why that's the case. Um, I think it ought to be probably. I think that there's lots of things that would be very useful for kids to learn that they don't, and how to handle money. I think would how to make money, how to save money. Uh, how to invest money, how to keep track of your money, etc. All these things would be useful for people to learn. I certainly, when I was growing up, we did not we not did not learn this in school. And I'll mm. take your word for it. I don't know. I don't. Know, I do not know the extent to which students are learning that now. But if they're not learning it, that strikes me as a defect. I think it's something people should learn. Obviously, pretty important and useful. Right. 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 How has the has your where did you where has where's your understanding of money coming from? Is it from your parents? Is it from YouTube or you know, and how has it changed since you were younger? Well, I would say the main change in my relationship to money is I went from having none to having some. All right. So when I was young, I was like completely dependent on my parents. Um mm -hmm. and I never made a lot of money from like, I, I made a little bit of money from like jobs, whatever, as a kid, but not very much. So like most of my money I got from my parents. So I think that created a kind of constant sense of guilt around money. Like I didn't, I kind of felt like I didn't, didn't deserve the money that I had. And I felt guilty about spending it. And I felt anxious about not having money in the future. So mm. I had money anxiety when I was young. Um, now I have a fairly stable income which is enough for me to live on comfortably. And so it's no longer a source of stress for me. Okay. Well, can you explain that money anxiety? I feel like a lot of kids, you know, probably go through that and they don't really know how to express it or, or voice it. Um, yeah, do you have a, 
like a specific example and and how you like kind of coped with it back then um I mean, when you have less money, obviously, you got to cut corners, you got to save, uh, you can't spend as much. Um, like, I remember, like, a purchase now that I wouldn't think twice about making. Uh, when I was, like, for example, I'm someone for whom making money was delayed, right? Because, um, I didn't really start making money until I became a professor. And that was like at the age of 30. Um, before that, I was basically a student my whole life. So I spent a long time in graduate school getting my PhD and so on. Um, and so I was kind of late making money. So I didn't have like, I didn't have a car, etc. cetera. Um, I had to always be sort of economizing until like fairly late in life. Um, I would say, as far as advice, I mean, I would just think about what's important. I would say if, if a person's low on money, figure out what they're spending their money on, what, the, what, what their, where their money is going and see if, if it's going, see if, see what kind of value they're getting on their investments, see if there's ways they could economize, et cetera. Mm. Okay. I love it. I love it. I think, you know, I think more of a, a bigger topic uh is you know our second topic which is education all right um, you probably have wealth of knowledge on um i guess you know what how does someone get through you know their master's degree how does someone get through their phd you know i mean just from your personal experience you know um well a lot of people don't um it's I mean, a master's degree is quite different from a PhD. So a master's degree is something a person might do in a year or two, whereas a PhD will typically take five, six years, sometimes longer. Um, it used to be people would do a master's before a PhD. Now, at least in, in uh, the humanities, at least in many fields, you can go straight from the BA to the, to the PhD. So a master's is something you get if you, like if you, if you drop out of the PhD program, after having completed your coursework, they might give you a master's, like a consolation prize type thing. Um, <laughs> or if you, let's suppose you did not do, um, suppose you want to do a PhD in one program, uh, but you did your undergraduate education in something else. All right. So um, you didn't really feel qualified to enter, a, or did you, you, you didn't think the program would, would regard you as qualified to enter the program right away then you could do a master's as a transition. So you did your undergrad in, in field X, you wanna to move to field Y, so you do a master's in field Y, and then you can do a PhD in field Y, that kind of thing. Um, so anyway, as far as the PhD, it's a much longer process and it has an attrition rate, all right? So there's a, a fair number of people who, who may drop out partway through the program. And even the ones who don't drop out through the program, it's not, un, it's not unusual to think about dropping out in the middle of the program or to wonder if you're doing the right thing. I mean, those, those kinds of doubts I think are pretty common. Um, mm -hmm. Okay. I think, I think that those kind of doubts, uh, a lot of students face themselves, right? What do you, what would you say is the, what is your opinion on the current state of education then? Um, I would say that my opinion on the current state of education 
is lukewarm. Um, what does that mean? Well, well, it's not terrible, but it's not incredibly enthusiastic. All right. So when I say it's not terrible, I think people are better off getting educated than not getting educated overall. Um, but I think that the kind of education people are getting is not wonderful. All right. So, um, give an example. All right. So, um, I think in some ways things have improved. Um, when I was a kid, way too much education was about memorization. And the thing about mem the thing about memorization is it's pretty useless. You learn something for a test, you learn something for an exam, and then you never have to use it again, and so you forget it. And so you've invested all this time memorizing things for a test or an exam. And then you do the test or the exam, you forget it, and all of that effort, it was basically a waste. I mean, it wasn't a waste as far as you advancing in your academic career. Maybe it gets you into the next school, but it's not making you any better or smarter or anything like that. Um, I remember when I was in my first year in college and uh, I took a psychology class and the entire psychology class was basically about memorizing the textbook and they would ask, the exams would ask the most ridiculous questions. So here was one of the questions. In the study conducted by Smith, Jones and so-and-so, what was the duration of the control study? A, three months, B, six months, C, nine months, or D, 12 months. It makes no difference whatsoever, all right? Knowing whether it's six months or nine months has no bearing on the relevance of this study to anything about psychology. It simply distinguishes people between people who memorized every single line in this bloody textbook from people who didn't waste their time memorizing every line in the bloody textbook, all right? So way too much education is based on memorization. And that's one, and that's one problem. Um, I think that education should be based on science. And in particular, actually based on brain science, all right? We should figure out what kids need to be doing to be developing their brains and what people need to be doing at what ages, right? There are certain things like, for example, picking up languages or learning sports or learning musical instruments, et cetera, that your brain is probably best at at a young age, right? So I, for example, am very uncoordinated. Um, so there are certain sports I'm decent at, right? I'm decent at strength-based sports, I'm decent at endurance-based sports, I'm decent at speed-based sports, but any sport that involves coordination, ball handling, cells, etc., I'm hopeless at. Um, and I don't think I could, at this point in my life, I don't think I'd ever become good at them. Um, but if I'd been doing them as a kid, I would have. Similarly, at this age, I could never become a great concert pianist or great concert violinist. There's lots of things. At this age, I'll never become fluent. I'll never speak Mandarin without an accent. All right. At this age, those things would be very, very difficult to do. Right. At a young enough age, 
those things would be very much things that people could accomplish, right? So I think that one way education should be based on brain science, people should figure out what are the activities kids can be doing that are gonna be developing their brains in ways that A, are gonna be useful the rest of their lives or could be useful the rest of their lives, useful in a variety of areas, and B, where at this age, they're in the perfect window to be developing those skills. Um, that's one area where I think that education could be improved. Um, I think that sort of general knowledge, um, on the one hand, I think that memorization is, over, is overrated. Now that people have Google, they can look up what they need. Um, but a sort of general framework for understanding the world mm -hmm. is something that would be useful for kids to have. And I feel that um, the education people get is, um, it doesn't give a very good broad overall framework. All right? I, don't, I don't feel that kids understand sort of uh, human history in any kind of broad sense. I don't think that people understand, for example, uh, sort of basic science, basic astronomy, cosmology, et cetera, the structure of the universe, the structure of matter, natural selection, sort of the, the atomic theory, sort of the basics of science, um, which you can understand. I mean, obviously, understanding something like atomic theory at a deep level would require much more advanced science. But just a basic understanding of how the physical world works, a basic understanding of human history, a basic understanding of the greatest achievements not only scientific achievements, but also cultural achievements. These are the kinds of things you'd expect students to get in like 20 years of education. And I, I feel like most students are not getting that. Um, they're getting, I think, a very sort of narrowly focused and often politically driven um, perspective on the world. So for example, American students learn a ton about American history and very little about all other kinds of history. And even within American history, there's going to be a huge emphasis on certain aspects, like the civil rights movement will become an extreme focus of, of the history people learn. And there'll be huge amounts of other things that will be completely neglected and that students won't know. Um, so I think a kind of one-sidedness of what people are taught is one problem, I think. And, a lack of a broad perspective, trying to get, trying to create a general knowledge of how things work, I think is an issue. And I think an overemphasis on memorization is a problem. Um, and I think a lack of thinking about things from a brain scientific point of view. But I think these are three areas where I feel education could be improved. I love it, I love it. I'll also say that I think that um, education should be more self-directed. All right, so people, really only learn when they want to learn. They're only, a person's only going to learn about something if they're actually passionate about it and want to learn about it and are self-motivated, all right? So if you're learning about something because you find it fascinating, you're going to really learn it and you're going to retain that for the rest of your life. If you're learning mm -hmm. something because of a test coming up, you're only going to remember it for that test. So I think that education should be more sort of individually motivated and self-directed. I love that. I love that. and self-directed. What do you, uh, as a teacher, you know, what what are what are like the three biggest challenges you face? Um, 
biggest challenges I face as a teacher? Well, different, I teach in different kinds of class um, at different kinds of levels, right? So I might teach a class of, of PhD students or, or I might teach a class of first year students, different kinds of challenges. Um, I might teach a class that had half a dozen students. I might teach a class with a couple hundred students. Those would have very different challenges. I would say, um, let's think about a large class. I, I enjoy teaching large classes. Um, one challenge that class is simply the great disparity, the great differences there are between the students. All right. So on the one hand, you are going to have some students who know a lot about the topic you're discussing, who are very interested in the topic you're discussing, and you'll have other students who have much less background knowledge and much less interest. All right, so mm -hmm. I think one of the keys is teaching in a way that is interesting, interesting and engaging for people who have more knowledge and more interest, but at the same time doesn't lose the students who have less knowledge. That's one thing. Um, Another thing is just, I would say just maintaining interest. I feel that much of the task of a professor is to be an entertainer, right? If somebody's asleep during the lecture, they're not going to learn anything, right? right? So you need to keep the students interested. You need to keep the students engaged. So a lot of, the, so a lot of it is not just what are some important things for them to know, but what's a way that I can convey this in a way that keeps their interest. Um, also for me, teaching, my approach to teaching is not really so much about instilling knowledge in students. It's more about instilling critical thinking skills in students. So for me, a lecture is really more of a discussion than a lecture. It's more me trying to get students engaged in a conversation. Um, and so, so a big challenge, I mean, there's some students who are happy to engage and every, want to talk every class. With other students who'd much rather just sit back and watch and listen and not have to be involved. But I feel like they're gonna get more out of the class if they actually actively participate. So for me, a big challenge is getting everyone, including the more shy students, comfortable with actively participating in the class. The shy students participating in class. Yeah. Got it, I love that. Um, when you mentioned, uh, I guess, is there a difference between a professor and a teacher? Um, yeah, um, general, so I tend to use the word instructor if I want to use a broad term, it'll cover all of them. Um, right. Generally, the word teacher will be used for someone who teaches uh, elementary school, high school, etc. Mm. Um, the word professor will be used for someone who teaches in a university. Um, they have to got to have a PhD. So basically, to, to count as a professor, you got to have a PhD. And you got to work in a university, maybe also a, like a community college. I'm not sure what they call them in community colleges. Um, teacher, more likely um, high school, public school, elementary school. Okay. And then uh, I guess it's such an interesting, you know, the way you talk about educating and the difficulties that you have, you know, I guess from, I guess, bringing it back into your high school careers, you know, how, how who were you in high school? Who was I? I don't think I'm all that much different now than I was then. Um, and basically, um, 
a wrinklier um, and fatter. I'm a wrinklier and fatter, fatter version of the guy I was, I was when I was in high school. Um, maybe not quite as sharp mentally. I'm not sure about that. Um, <laughs> I was, I think, well, I think here's a difference. If I'm trying to think of differences between myself now and myself in high school. Yeah. Um, and how old are you right now? Um, as my grandmother used to say when people asked her that question, <laughs> I am as old as my little finger. Um, <laughs> all right, so um, I think that I was, I think probably it's, it's common in high school for people to care what other people think about them. All right, <laughs> so I think I was more concerned with my persona uh, with what impression I gave on other people. I mean, I mean every, I'm not going to say, I'm, I'm not going to say I don't care about that. Now, everybody, everybody who's a social, an ordinary, non-psychopathic human being who lives in society cares what other people think about them. Um, but I think that I cared more when I was in high school. So I think that I had more of a need to like impress people at that point than I do now. Um, apart from that, um, and apart from being uh, fatter and wrinklier, <laughs> I think I'm pretty much the same person I I now as I was then. I love it. Okay. And then uh what are what are three pieces of life advice you have for the youth? Um three pieces of life advice. One piece of a life advice I would have is and this is going to sound like a cliche, not a very original answer to this question, but I think it's important. Find something you love, find something you're passionate about, and to find that, be willing to explore, be willing to experiment, be willing to try a few things, be willing to fail, be willing to embarrass yourself, be willing to look silly, all right? Try a bunch of things to discover what you really care about, what you're really passionate about, and then pursue that. That'd be probably the most important thing. Um, do you, do you have an example of the biggest challenge that you that you faced? I mean, essentially, you know, taking your own advice, just give an example. Um, challenge that I faced, I think one challenge was like being taken seriously. Like, um, I think when you're a kid, nobody respects young people, right? So like, when I was like a teenager or younger, nobody respected me and no one took me seriously. And I think that's probably what led to insecurity. Um, so I think, I mean, over time, my confidence has increased, but um, I would say if you're a young person and you feel like I felt then, just, you know, be confident in yourself, realize the people who, realize that one day you're going to get the respect that you probably already earn now and the people who are not respecting you are fools and not to take them too seriously somebody wants some advice um other pieces of advice you know think for yourself all right don't assume that because everybody else thinks something it's true all right so there are certain areas where if everyone thinks it, it probably is true all right like if everybody thinks the capital of 
France is Paris. Well, the capital of France is probably Paris, right? So there's everybody thinks that the boiling point of water is, you know, there are certain areas where in, so if the consensus exists, the consensus probably exists because it's true, all right? But there's lots of areas, all right, morality, politics, et cetera, et cetera, arts, culture, blah, blah. There's lots of areas where people think what they think because it's fashionable. People think what they think because some people around them think it. Um, and where consensus, where consensus can arise on no real concrete foundation, all right? So I would say, think for yourself, don't assume that what everybody else thinks, whether it's your peers, your parents, your teachers, your professors, whatever, whoever it might be, but any authority figures there, there might be, don't assume it because they all think it. It's right. You know, challenge, challenge people, all right? Ask what the evidence is. Think what the evidence is. Evaluate the arguments. Ask for an argument. Ask for evidence. Consider counter evidence. Look at things from all different perspectives. Don't be afraid of alternative perspectives, all right? Um, another, another piece of advice. Um, third piece of advice, I would say never underestimate the importance of a healthy lifestyle, all right? So we now live in a world where we have a very unnatural kind of life, all right? So we didn't evolve to sit in chairs all of our lives. We didn't involve, evolve to sit in front of a computer or just to be staring at a screen for our whole lives, all right? We didn't evolve to eat tons of sugar and refined carbs and so on, all right? We didn't evolve to wear the kinds of clothes that people wear, like the kinds of shoes that people wear that completely throw off people's postures, et cetera. All right, so lots of things that people do now creates a very kind of unnatural and unhealthy kind of life that is really not what natural selection designed us to live, all right? So the more you can try to mitigate um, the unnaturalness of modern existence, the better. The more you can get back to a more natural way of living, the better. I love it. Going back to a natural way of living. When you were talking, uh, do 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 uh, do a lot? Do you get a lot of students coming up to you asking like for life advice questions? What are like the top two questions students usually ask you? Um, I never get life advice. I, I almost never get life advice. I won't, I won't say I never have, but it's pretty rare for me to get life advice questions from students. It's more often academic questions I get from students. Really? You think like, you know, you teach philosophy. I, I, if I was in your class, I'd be asking questions all day. I'd be like, oh, what is, what is the meaning of life? Can I get, you know, <laughs> you, don't, you don't get people like that? I don't get that very much, no. <laughs> Did you ever ask those questions when you were uh, going through school to your professors? No. No? <laughs> Never. You just wanted the grade and, and move on through your, your rest? No, I sometimes, I sometimes ask philosophical questions. Um, my professors didn't always want to answer them. I had a lot of lazy professors who wouldn't want to answer even academic questions. But uh, I mostly focus on academic questions. Okay. I love it. All right. Moving on to our third and last topic of the day, which is love. Tell me, 
how do you feel pressure to get married? Uh, no, zero. Um, so when I say I don't feel, I certainly don't feel any external pressure. Like nobody in my family is like, when are you going to get married, etc. Um, yeah, no, I've there nobody ever at any point in my entire life has ever exerted one iota of pressure on me to get married. Um, so any pressure I might feel would be internal. Mm. So sometimes I'm like, Jake, you should get married. So I might have that internal voice telling me that, but no external pressure. Okay. And then uh, here's a philosophical question. What is love? What is love? Okay. Um, so love is something like an attitude. All right. Uh, it's an attitude that um, humans and other animals have typically towards other humans or other animals of the same species, all right? Let's focus on humans, all right? So love is, I mean, the word love can be used in many ways. It could just be used to mean something like uh, enjoyment or strong liking, like I, I love ice cream, I love skiing. But I think typically when people, are, when people ask what is love, they're interested in the attitude that a human being can have towards another human being. Um, now, when you're thinking about emotions, attitudes, etc., it's always useful to think, what is the function? What, what function does this attitude serve? All right. And it seems like the function of love is primarily something like bonding. All right. Mm -hmm. So it creates bonding within families. It creates bonding um in terms of sexual partners and it creates bonding um among uh sort of uh among friends i'm not sure there's a more general term i can use for uh for love between people who are not member who are not family members or sexual partners um but it seems to exist in all three of those kinds of domains um it generally produces um, a number of manifestations. One of them is it intensifies altruism, right? So generally, human beings have a certain level of altruism. In general, we want others to fare well. We are somewhat distressed when others suffer. Um, that can be mitigated by envy, all right, so sometimes if we envy someone, we may have the opposite attitude, or if we dislike someone or hate someone, we'll have the opposite attitude. But love obviously amplifies altruism, all right? So if you love someone, you're gonna have a stronger desire for them to fare well, be more distressed when they fare poorly. So altruism is one aspect of love. Another aspect of love is dependence, all right? So if you love someone, you're going to be, um, you're going to be pleased in their presence. Their presence is going to sort of in, increase dopamine levels, etc. And you're going to, that's going to be the opposite kind of response when they're gone. You're going to feel a sense of need or dependence upon them. Um, so I would say increased altruism and increased dependence are certainly two of the um, two of the primary manifestations of love. Um, I'm sure there are others as well. I love it. Well, tell me what what uh 
what is your relationship with your parents? You know, talking about that that love between you know parents and their and their kids. Um, my father is dead. Um, my mother is alive, and um, my relationship with my father was not great when he was alive. My relationship with my mother is uh, very good. Okay, very straight and direct answers. I love it. Uh, tell me, uh, what would you tell kids about dating from your own perspective? Um, I would say, what would be my dating advice? Well, my first piece of dating advice would be don't get dating advice from me. I'm the worst person to get dating advice from. Um, <laughs> but if they insisted on getting dating advice from me, I would say... Don't have unrealistic expectations, all right? So um, I think this is especially once people, once people have been dating for a while, this is less common, all right? Mm -hmm. But I think that sometimes young people have unrealistic expectations. Like they they fall in love with someone, they instantly think they want to spend their entire life with them. And, um, and then, of course, it doesn't happen, and so they're heartbroken. Um, so I think that if somebody, if, if a young person is getting into dating, I would say, think of what you're doing as a kind of experimentation. You're learning about yourself, you're learning about what you like, you're developing skills, all right? You're learning about how to interact with others, et cetera. You're, I mean, having, you're having fun, hopefully, or you're cultivating some memories that you'll be able to look back on fondly. But chances are, you're not finding your life partner. And um, I mean, maybe you will, but don't have that kind of high expectation. That'd be one piece of advice I'd have. Um, a second piece of advice I'd have is don't become obsessed about it. Um, there's, two mm. reasons, there's two reasons not to become obsessed about it. One of them is becoming obsessed with dating. Let me give you three reasons. One of them, becoming obsessed with dating um, can destroy other parts of your life. Um, so for example, if you become so obsessed with dating, you, you stop, you cut off your, you burn your bridges with other people in your life, it can undermine your friendships. And even though these friendships are perhaps what, what are gonna give you more uh, overall satisfaction from in the long run. So don't burn bridges and cut off other things. Second, if you become obsessed with dating, then you're not going to be working on other projects. You're not going to be working on developing yourself. And you're not going to be working on becoming the kind of person whom others are going to want to date, right? So someone's going to want to date you if you're interesting and if you're successful and if you're confident, etc. And all those things come from projects and passions and pursuits other than dating. Right? So if you get so obsessed with dating, everything else goes on hold, you're going to undermine your ability to, be, to become the kind of person that other people are going to find attractive and want to date. Um, thirdly, um, if you become too obsessed with dating, that can turn off your dating partner. All right. So I think that often people are attracted to what they can't have or have it, they're attracted to things where they feel that their grip on it is insecure, all right? 
if you're dating someone and you think that they're absolutely nuts about you um, and uh, there's no way they'd ever want to leave you, et cetera, and uh, their life would be over if you left them, et cetera. If, you've, if, that's, if the person you're dating seems to feel that way about you, that will very often be a turnoff, all right? Um, so having becoming too obsessed with someone, having too much interest in someone can actually be self-undermining since it can undercut the person's interest in you. I love yeah. that. Thank you. Those are my three reasons for suggesting not to become obsessed, either with dating in general or with your dating partner in particular. Have you have people been obsessed with you, or has it been the other way around? Have you been on both sides of the spectrum? I think I've. Um, I'm trying to think. I would say that my actual dating experiences have been yeah. non-obsessive. Um, so actually, that isn't quite true. Um, <laughs> I have never been obsessed with anyone I was dating. Um, right. I have, I've had obsessive infatuations um, where I wasn't, where I wasn't dating. Um, and I've certainly, I've certainly been in situations where I was dating someone who wanted to marry me where I didn't want to marry her. So, that, but I'm not sure about if it leveled, I'm not sure if it, if it reached the level of obsessiveness, but there have been sort of asymmetries of that kind. Um, yeah. I love it. I love it. And I think that kind of speaks to the whole expectations, right? Like sometimes people, uh, I think it was the first one that you mentioned or the second one where like you guys, you need to have like, you know, the right expectations, like don't, don't have delusions about what this relationship is. Like know, know exactly like what it is. Um, I guess just to wrap it up and to thank you for your time. Uh, what is, the biggest problem you face in your life right now and how can, if a community member was listening right now and they could solve it for you, what would that problem be? Ooh, what is the biggest problem I'm facing in my life right now? Huh. My biggest problem I'm facing in my life right now is trying to answer the question you just asked because I'm not quite sure what would count as the biggest problem I'm facing right now. Um, Sound like a philosophical, like twisting back kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I don't want to rank them. I would say obviously one problem a lot of people are facing is the quarantine, right? Um, I would like to be traveling right now. I'd like to be seeing my family, for example, and I can't mm -hmm. do that. Um, that's certainly one issue, but uh, there are okay. probably deeper things, but um, that's, 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 that's at least one example. I love it. So guys, if you're listening and you can get Mr. Jake back to Canada to see his mother, you know, that, that would be very much helpful for him. If you guys, you know, if you got an uncle or a dad that works for the government and they can charter a flight, <laughs> to, uh, <laughs> that would be of excellent help. Um, thank you guys for joining us. Uh, before I forget, uh, 88 Real Estate Media is looking for members to join the Oversight Committee to build the best mindfulness school in Southern California. Uh, if you're interested, shoot us a message. 
Also, if you do business in the real estate industry, please do consider hiring 88 Real Estate Media. Um, and before we leave, I just want to uh, give a shout out to you real quick, uh, Jake. Uh, let me share my screen real quick. I'm sure you uh, check this out all the time. But yeah, Mr. Jake Ross is a professor at USC. Check him out on Rate My Professor. Take his class. Uh, his uh, top rating tags are Participation Matters. He is hilarious. Uh, don't skip his class because you won't pass. Uh, and he gives amazing lectures. So guys, check it out. Um, do you, do you, have you ever been on that? Ray, my professor, have you looked at your stats? Not in a while, but um, I have in the past. Okay, great. Uh, do you have any last words for the audience? Um, last words. Um, have a nice rest of your day. And you as well. Thank you.